Christ Community Church, located at 25th and Thomas Avenue in Portsmouth, Ohio. Christ Community meets on Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 10.30 a.m. For more information, visit www.christcommunity.net or check out our Facebook page. Good morning, Christ Community Church. Oh, come on. <laughs> Goodness sakes, man. Um, let's try that one more time. Good morning, Christ Community Church. Much gooder. All right. Uh, a couple things before we get going. The, the first is this. Tomorrow we need uh, some help with Johnny and friends. If anybody can be here at the church building at 1.30 and head out uh, to help with that, that would be appreciated. Uh, second, you know, as Caitlin said, we've got the ARC um, encounter coming up for kids. It's not something you want to miss. So if you've got kids or grandkids, you want to go ahead and sign them up for that because if you do that early, then you get a cheaper ticket. Uh, the other thing is, Kayla is not here this morning, our children's minister. She had surgery this week. They took out her uh, thyroid on Friday uh, up at the James, and she's home recovering. Um, she's on pain med, so don't call her or it'll be interesting. Um, but uh, just pray for her and her recovery. Everything seemed to go well, but just keep her and the family in prayer. Um, I don't know how many of you have seen this. <clears throat> Chris has played it. It's been on Facebook. There was a video that we played of Patrick, you know, giving an update on Christ Community Church, Uganda, showing, you know, the uh, land that's been bought and cleared and all that kind of stuff, and, and they're moving forward with that. And um, so if you haven't seen that video, you can go on our Facebook page and you can watch it. Now, I don't know how many of you read the Christian Post. Um, it's a Christian news site that I look at just about every day and it is worth looking at. The Christian Post reported this week an outbreak of killing of Christians by Muslims in Uganda. Now, I know that we as Christians, even in this country, have opposition. But our opposition is legal or it's just kind of a nuisance. I will tell you two weeks ago when I was preaching, I, didn't, I wasn't quite sure at this time, so I didn't say anything, but two weeks ago, the um, Sunday after Roe v. Wade, we had protesters show up here. Um, but here's how God works. They were late. <laughs> Someone has told me that there is some website out there, I don't know what it is, I can't find it, but I've been told several times that there's a website out there that says that our Saturday service is at 6 when it's at 5, and our Sunday morning service is at 11 instead of 10.30. So we had abortion protesters show up here at 11.01, and I already quit talking about Ruby Wade at that point, and so they just got up and left. After five minutes of sitting here listening to me talk about the Tower of Babel and Jesus, they were looking at each other like, what, what's going on here? And then they finally got up and, and, and they left. And, and so, you know, that's, that's the kind of opposition we 
face here. They just got confused and left. Paula, our church secretary, I told her about it on Monday, and she started laughing. She said, why didn't you say, hey, don't, don't forget to stop by the visitor's table. That's, she's from the west side, so she's like that. Um, but, but anyway, that's the kind of opposition we face. But what Patrick and Eddie face is literally a question of life or death. And so be praying for those gentlemen every single day as they continue to push forward to establish that church and preach the gospel in Uganda. Uh, for those of you who have been there, I mean, you know, uh, the late dictator Muammar Gaddafi spent a billion, billion dollars building brand new mosques throughout Uganda to try to bring people to Allah. So they, they've got a real fight on their hands, a real fight on their hands. Which brings me to our text today. We are continuing with the Gospel Project, and we're in Genesis 14 today, Genesis 14, 17 through 24. Genesis 14, 17 through 24. It's a strange text. We meet this guy who pops up out of nowhere named Melchizedek. We have no idea where he came from. We have no idea where he went, but for some reason he really is important to the biblical authors. He's mentioned just here and then only one more time in the Old Testament, but then a bunch of times in the New Testament in the book of Hebrews. And so there's something there. And so let's unpack it and see what's going on here. Genesis 14, 17 through 24. 17. After Abram, this is, for his, this is before his name has been changed to Abraham. After Abram returned from his victory over Keter Laomer and all his allies. Now, what that means is that you need to understand that back in the day, we're talking thousands and thousands of years ago, that back in the day, what happened was you had these little cities, and they would have kings, but really they were just mayors. I mean, you're talking about a, a, a city or a town of a couple thousand people. And they would lead their men out on war parties, raid parties, to try to just steal stuff, basically. And so... Abraham hears about this, and then one of them has snatched, you know, you know, one of his kin and all that kind of stuff. And so he takes his men, and he goes out to fight against them, and he wins. And so that's what's going on there. Now, the king of Sodom, and yes, it's that Sodom, if you're wondering. Sodom and Gomorrah, it's that Sodom. Went out to meet him in the valley of Sheba, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, the king of Salem. Now... I know we got a lot of Salem's in this country. I've been to Salem, Massachusetts. You know, unfortunately, I've been to Salem, Ohio. Not much to see there, but I've been there. Salem, some of you have been to, like Gary, Sandy, others you have been there, because it would become known as Jerusalem. He is the king priest of Jerusalem. Melchizedek, the king of Salem, or Jerusalem, and priest of God Most High. That means he's not just a pagan priest. Whenever the Bible says priest of God Most High, that means the only God. Now notice what he brings. He brought Abram some bread and wine. 
that sound familiar? What did Caitlin just lead you in doing? Yeah. In the ancient church, and, and in some churches still, if you have the Lord's Supper, you have bread and you have wine. Here we have grape, Welch's grape juice from Sam's Club. But in some churches, it's real wine. And in, and in the ancient church, center, it was real wine. Now, there's a reason for that. Um, they didn't know about bacteria and microbes and, and so forth. And they did know that when they drank water from a creek, oh, that makes me sick. But when they drank fermented juice, oh, that doesn't make me sick unless I drink a lot of it. And so that's why they drink a lot of wine. But because it was just safer. But the bread and the wine, this is a shadow of what is to come. This is, you can see, if you really look as we go through the Old Testament, you will see what Jesus said in the Gospel of John, all Scripture. And when he, Jesus said all Scripture, all the Scripture had been written was the Old Testament. There's no New Testament at that time. He says all Scripture points to me. Melchizedek, the king of Jerusalem, priest of God most high, brought Abraham some bread and wine, communion. And Melchizedek blessed Abram with this blessing. Blessed be Abraham by God most high, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high who has defeated your enemies for you. Now, why would you have to bless God? Now, the Hebrew Greek word actually means to be in favor the Greek is makarios, to be hold in favor. So what Melchizedek is saying is, Abraham, you, you're in favor. God favors you, and we need to favor God. That's what he's saying. And blessed be God most high who has defeated your enemies for you. Now, this is interesting. If we think of a blessing in modern Christianity, what do we think of? We think of some, basically, we think we have some kind of magical power, and we're going there, may your kids be blessed, may your marriage be blessed, may your business be blessed. But that's not what a scriptural blessing is. We have no power to make that happen. God does. We don't. We can say, hope your kids do all right, hope your business does all right, hope your marriage does all right. But we have no power to change any of that. Only God does. So you look at this blessing, and, and what Melchizedek says is, God favors you. And if I'm Abraham, I'm sitting there thinking, yeah, he told me that two chapters ago. Himself. God himself told me that. So, duh. And he says... And he has defeated your enemies for you. Well, yeah, he just left the battlefield. They're defeated. He's like, duh, too. I'm in God's favor. Yeah, he told me that. He has defeated your enemies. Yeah, I just defeated my enemies. Now, that doesn't sound like a blessing to us to tell Abraham what he already knows. But we'll come back to this and see that, yeah, actually it is. Now notice this, in response, here's what Abraham does. 
Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth of all the goods he had recovered. Melchizedek, a priest king, priest of the God Most High, brings bread and wine, communion, and Abraham, in response, gives him 10%. What does that sound like to you? It's a tithe. It's a tithe. What's going on here? Are you starting to catch on that when Jesus says all Scripture points to me, he means it? But now notice this, because there are two kings standing there. Verse 21, the king of Sodom said to Abram, give back my people who were captured, but you may keep for yourself all the goods you have recovered. Abram replied to the king of Sodom, I solemnly swear to the Lord God most high, creator of heaven and earth, that I will not take so much as a single thread or sandal thong from what belongs to you. Now that's an insult. Otherwise, you might say, I am the one who made Abram rich. I will accept only what my young warriors have already eaten, and I request that you give a fair share of the goods to my allies, Aner, Eshel, and Mamre. This guy named Melchizedek, who we've never met, king of Jerusalem, priest of God, shows up, bringing communion, and Abraham says, here's 10% of what I got. This other king, the king of Sodom, goes, hey, 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 I'll make a deal with you. And Abram's like, I ain't interested in you, bub. You think he's got a little insight here about who he's dealing with? He wants nothing to do with the king of Sodom. But he happily receives a blessing and ties to the mysterious figure of Melchizedek who is a priest and king. Now, that's interesting. I know you're going, Matt, why is that interesting? Okay, I'm a nerd. I'm going to tell you why. You were not allowed under God's law to be a priest and a king. Later on, when we get to Moses, when Moses shows up and God delivers the law, especially in Leviticus and in Numbers, One of the things we get is this. The priest has to be from the line of Aaron. He has to be a Levite in order to be a priest. And then in Deuteronomy, God says, and when you choose a king, and they're going, we don't have a king, we don't want a king, and God's going, yeah, but you will. And when you get a king, it's going to go this way. God separates the priest from the king. Now, here's where it gets confusing. There are only three offices in the Old Testament, anointed offices. King, priest, and prophet. That's it. King, priest, prophet. Now, a king could prophesy. A priest could prophesy. A prophet could be a priest, but a king could not be a priest. In 1 Samuel 13, Saul, the first king, and I'll get to that in a second, king of Israel. I hate using that term. I'll tell you why in a minute. When Saul is leader of Israel, in 1 Samuel 13, he tries to 
do Samuel's job for him and offer sacrifices and do priestly duties. And Samuel comes along and goes, you just lost your kingship, buddy. God's forbidden that. You don't do that. It was forbidden. The kings and the priests had separate spheres. Now, you may not know this. That's okay. But, and you're not, some of you who were raised Church of Christ, Christian Church, Nazarene, Methodist, you're not going to like this. But, the idea of the separation of church and state, which is not the same as we use today, but the idea that you cannot have them in the same kind of building was brought to you by a guy by the name of John Calvin. John Calvin, when he was, and I know some of you don't like John Calvin, that's okay, but John Calvin read Greek and Hebrew better than I read English. He was a smart dude, and he was a dedicated, godly man. He made his mistakes. There are some things I disagree with him on, but John Calvin was really a dedicated Christian to the point that he spent his life training pastors in the gospel, and he spent a lot of his time writing commentaries for pastors to help train them in the Bible. And in fact, John Calvin, on his deathbed, sick as a dog, high fever, gray color, coughing up a lung, and all the people around him went to him and said, and said, Mr. Calvin, you, you quit working. He was sitting in his bed writing commentaries. They said, quit working. And he said, shall the Lord come to find me and find me idle? We know the last thing John Calvin wrote because it's an incomplete sentence. He was writing a commentary and got halfway through a sentence and he died. And we have it. But John Calvin said, look, here's how government should go. If you look at the Old Testament, the king doesn't get to be a priest. The priest doesn't get to be a king. And we need to maintain that. Now, what he meant by separation of church and state, and this is going to rankle some of you, but what he meant by church and state, separation of church and state, was the state has no authority over the church. The church can influence the state, but the state has no say in what goes on in the church. Now, we've got that twisted backwards these days, but originally that's what it meant. And that was Calvin looking at this. But here we have a guy who is a priest king. And he comes out of nowhere. Appointed by God. What is that about? I don't know anything about Melchizedek. The Bible doesn't tell us who is where he came from necessarily, who his parents were. We don't know how he died. We don't know how long he lived. We know almost nothing other than he pops up here. Abraham recognizes him as a priest king of the God Most High. They have communion together. He gives them a tithe. Out of the picture. What's going on? He pops up one other place in the Old Testament. One other place. Psalm 110. Now I'm going to go to Psalm 110. And you need to know this. A couple things about Psalm 110. Number one, Psalm 110 is the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. And Jesus 
quotes it a lot. In fact, in Matthew 22, Jesus gets, and you don't have to go there, but in Matthew 22, Jesus gets into this back and forth with his Jewish opponents, and, and they, he says to them, have you not read, basically, and he quotes Psalm 110, and it starts this way, the Lord said to my Lord, and he asked them, he said, who wrote that? And they said, well, David wrote that, and he goes, really? Yeah, it's David writing about his son who would be king, and Jesus goes, oh, uh, let me ask you something, I'm paraphrasing here. He goes, let me ask you something. When does a dad who is king tell a son, call his son who is king, Lord? No dad calls his son, Lord. So who is David talking to? And they're like, the Jewish response is, eh? And Jesus' implication is, he's talking about me, dummies. David is talking to me. The Lord said to my Lord, sit in the place of honor at my right hand until I humble your enemies, making them a footstool under your feet. The Lord will extend your powerful kingdom from Jerusalem. You will rule over your enemies. Now notice this, verse 3. I want you to notice this. When you go to war, this is David talking to Jesus. Say, Jesus, when you go to war, your people will serve you willingly. That's us. When Jesus goes to war, David says, your church will fight willingly. Are you willing? Now, it's a different kind of fight. I'm not asking you to go get an AR-15. Sorry, Josh. It's a different kind of fight, but it is a fight. Talk about that here in a second. You are arrayed in holy garments, and your strength will be renewed each day like the morning dew. The Lord has taken an oath and will not break his vow. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. This is David talking to Jesus saying you are a priest in the order of Melchizedek. In other words, he's not a Levite. He's not born into this. He is anointed by God to be a priest directly. The Lord stands at your right hand to protect you. He will strike down many kings when his anger erupts. He will punish the nations and fill their lands with corpses. This is David talking to Jesus about doing this. So just in case you still have that image in your mind of Jesus with a yoga mat and herbal tea, you need to get it out. And fill their land with corpses. He will shatter heads over the whole earth. But he himself will be refreshed from brooks along the way. He will be victorious. This is David writing a psalm to Jesus and saying, you are a different kind of priest. And you are king. Only the king sits at the right hand of the Lord. And your enemies will be crushed. I want to take a second there. <clears throat> 
couple things that I want to unpack for you there. First of all, David gets a bad rap. Um, typically within Christianity, what I've noticed is men who study the Bible really like David because he's a warrior and he fights and the ladies like him. And women don't like him because he liked the ladies. It's like if James Bond were married. And, but you need to understand this is why God favored David so much. And you don't get this in any English translation except for the Revised Standard Version, and that's ironic because they were liberals. But the Revised Standard Version gets this right. Whenever Samuel, who anointed David as king, or David refers to himself, Samuel referring to David or David referring to himself, David and Samuel never refer to David as king. Never. Never. Ever. David always refers to himself as prince, not king. Why? He saw God as king. And that's why God favored David. Saul saw himself as king and priest and whatever he wanted to do. David did not. And that's why God favored David over Saul. David always referred to himself in Hebrew as the prince of Israel, not the king. God does not give up his throne, folks. We'll get to 1 Samuel in this Gospel Project sermon series. We'll get there. And when we get to 1 Samuel, what you're going to see is this. The Israelites go, give us a king. And Samuel goes, God is your king. Ah, we want a dude. We want somebody we can talk to. We want somebody we can lobby. And Samuel goes to God and goes, I, and God goes, they, they're rejecting me, not you. Don't worry about it. He goes, fine, go pick out this dude. He's the tallest guy in Israel. He, we'll teach him a lesson, Samuel. Show him what they get when they get a king. When God does that, God's not up in his heavenly throne going, oh, they don't want me anymore. Okay. Are you kidding me? God never abdicates his throne. God was on the throne. God is on the throne. God will always be on the throne, and no one will take it from him. God rules today. Read Romans 13. Read Romans 12 and 13. God rules today. I know it doesn't look that way. This is my second point. For those of you who, like me, for some reason, still watch the news. For some reason, I think I have to. Never makes me happy. I flip around different channels, and I watch the news, and I now know why Megan sleeps in. She wants to skip the news. Because it's depressing. And I get it. I understand that. But you need to understand this. And we'll unpack more of this in a second. But you need to understand this. 
This is very basic, but you need to tell it to yourself every day. Number one, are you Christians? That's not a rhetorical question. Are you Christians? Yes or no? Have you read the Bible? Ish. Okay. Who wins? We know the end of the story, folks. We win. Or more specifically, God wins. It's all going to work out. No matter how bad things are right now, it's all going to work out. I don't blame you if you're pessimistic about government. I have no faith in political parties or government. I am pessimistic. I am cynical. I will admit to that. But I am also hopeful because I've read the end of the book and I know how it ends. And in the meantime, when we get to the book of Hebrews, when it starts talking about Jesus in the order of Melchizedek, this special kind of priest that's not of the Levites, that's not a mortal, this different kind of priest, you need to understand the kind of priest king we have. And by the way, going back to the original Melchizedek, when it sounds like the blessing he's giving Abraham is just like duh and duh, I'm not so sure. I think the blessing he gave him was one, God favors you. Two, God will destroy your enemies. In other words, God will protect you. I think that's pretty powerful stuff to remind us of every day. I am amazed by how many people know the gospel of Jesus Christ and know how the book ends and are still miserable people. And I'm like, you're saved. We win. Why are you upset? 2 Corinthians 5.21, here's a blessing. He made him who knew no sin to become sin on your behalf so that in him you might become the righteousness of God. In other words, he saved you. I know that death is scary, especially crossing the 50 line, that I'm closer to it than I was. But, and I know, and I hope, I hope, I've told my wife, I don't want a funeral. William, you just cook me and toss me somewhere. Yeah, I don't care. Got no use for this no more. Just whatever. It'd be nice to know if some of you are crying. That'd be cool. Other than that, I don't care. You know what a funeral is for? The living, not the dead. It's for the living to get closure. For the dead who have faith in Jesus Christ, it's the best day of their life. And then to know, as Revelation 21, 1 through 7 tells us, that God will return and he'll remake the earth and the universe, the new heavens and the new earth. So we will come back and we will have an eternal, uncorrupted undecaying, unaging physical body, and we will be here with Jesus for all of eternity. Praise God. 
how upset can we really be? Right? The worst thing that can happen is we die and things get better. Okay. But in the meantime, we have this. He is our king, and he is our king. But he's also a priest. And this is the kind of priest he is. Now, you need to understand what a priest does, and I'll come back here in a second. But a priest does many things, but one of the things a priest does is pray for God's people. Romans 8.34. If you've never read Romans 8.34, underline it, circle it, highlight it, keep it in mind. Romans 8.34. When you're having a bad day, and you're going to have bad days. Megan and I have had bad days. We're still blessed. Um, our bank account's not as blessed because she's taking up golf. When did golf get so expensive? Spent four hours picking her up after picking her up at the airport the other day at the PGA store in Dublin. It's like Chuck E. Cheese for golfers. Romans 8, 34. Who will then condemn us? No one. For Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us, and he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand. Notice this. Notice this. Pleading for us. You know what that means? That means he's praying for us. The, the Christ who overcame death is sitting at the right hand of the Father praying for us. Do you know that? He sees every stinking thing we do, every rotten thought we have. And our priest king still died for us, prays for us, and is coming back for us. I got a wonderful wife, but I'm telling you right now, that's perfect love. That's our priest king. That's our priest king. Paul tells us in Philippians that one day, one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is king. They will do so willingly or unwillingly, but they will do it. We should do so willingly every single day. And in return, not that we can give Jesus anything he needs. He needs nothing. But what he wants from the people he has died for and that he prays for and that he's returning for is he wants, our king priest wants us to be little priests, lower priests. What do priests do? They worship. 
They sacrifice. They pray. They know the Word of God, and they teach the Word of God. And that's what he wants from us. To worship him and him only. That's one. To know his word and to share it. That's two. To pray for others. That's why you should always take this thing home. Because in the middle of it, it's got not only the questions to go over with your kids about what they've learned and what you're hearing here, but also it's got prayer lists in there. Doesn't matter if you don't know them, God does. And just offer a prayer for them. And we sacrifice. How do we sacrifice? The Bible's very clear. We sacrifice by loving one another. We go to hospital rooms. We go to hospices. We bring food to people. We help them. Now look, it's like Kayla right now, our children's minister, just went through a major surgery. You don't need to bug her. One, again, she's on pain meds, so she's high. That could be an interesting conversation. Those of you who are snarky like me, don't do it. I know you're already planning it. But her, her mom and her dad and her sister and her brother, they, they've, they'll take care of her. But if they need anything, they'll let you know. But if they need anything and they let us know, we do it because that's what we do as family. That's, we take care of one another. That's what we do. But priests also, in the Old Testament, also led the people of God into battle. Did you know that? Um, In his little book, Ed Welch, who used to teach at Westminster Seminary, wrote a little book called Created to Draw Near, Our Life as God's Royal Priests. It's a good little book, only about 120 pages. And he writes this, he says, Priests were an important part of Israel's warfare. The first battle in the promised land was against Jericho. Y'all remember that from Sunday school, right? The big walls, yeah. Where the priests brought the ark, the ark of the covenant, and for six days their trumpets were the only sound that could be heard. This is what the priests did. They led the people of God out into war. Now, going back to the news for just a second. I'm not telling you not to watch the news. I'm telling you not to get depressed over the news. They're going to be, before Jesus returns, more shootings, more riots, more nastiness everywhere. It's going to happen. Now, the Bible is very clear that that is sinful human beings giving in to temptation by Satan. I don't care. You may be a Biden supporter. You may be a Trump supporter. I don't care. I am telling you this, and I promise you this. Whoever's in power can make things better or worse but the only person who can fix us, and this is the problem, is Jesus Christ. 
If everybody in this country and this world professed Jesus as Lord, we wouldn't have these problems. It's that simple. And so we have a fight on our hands. Satan is moving, looking like a lion, looking to devour. That's what he does. He lies and he kills. So we have a fight. And as redeemed priests, lower priests in the order of Jesus Christ, we have to lead the people of God into battle. And we do that primarily through the things a priest does. Prayer, sacrifice, worship, that's what we do. The next time you see something on the news, don't just roll your eyes and yell out loud, or those idiots, or those morons, or those whatever. You may be right. Typically they are. Pray for them. Pray for them. The ding-dongs who want to disrupt church services and spray paint pregnancy centers and all the other kind of stuff and make threats, abortion's not safe, you're not either, that kind of stuff. Okay, that's stupid. And it's juvenile, really. But they're still made in the image and likeness of God. And so you're to pray for them. The way we fight as priests of Lord Jesus is we pray for him. We pray for everyone. We pray. Pray over the news. Don't just shout at it. Pray. I don't know how many of you, I'm a history geek, so, well, I'm a nerd, period, but I'm also a history nerd. I don't know how many of you know the name Hal Forge. Okay, that's a big zero I can see. Hal Forge. Hal Forge was a chaplain in the U.S. Navy, and he was serving on the USS New Orleans on December 7, 1941, in a place called Pearl Harbor. And on the USS New Orleans, they had taken a few hits from Japanese dive bombers, and um, they had lost electricity in a good part of the ship. And so, in order to get the machine gunners and everything, all the ammo up, they just formed a long line of Navy, and they were just, they're just throwing ammo up. They're just passing ammo up. And somebody at some point, a Japanese dive bomber came down and strafed with machine guns and it barely missed him. And somebody screamed out, where's the chaplain? And somebody said, he's back here. He said, tell him to pray. And a voice came because he was there helping to take the bullets and send them up. And he said, okay, here's my prayer. Praise the Lord and pass the ammunition. He was in a fight. We're in a fight. We need to see it as a fight. But first we praise the Lord. 
that were even alive and able and chosen to be in this fight, that were redeemed to be in this fight. It's a privilege. It's an honor. I was in New York in 9-11. I was in New York State in 9-11. I was in law school. I went to volunteer for the military the next week. They said, okay, well, you're in law school. Why don't you finish law school and become a JAG Corps member? Or you can become a chaplain. I said, whatever. They said, or you can be an intelligence officer. Whatever. Okay. They said, but here's the fitness requirements. I was like, "Uh uh-oh. So I looked over the fitness requirements, how many pull-ups I had to do, how many push-ups I had to do, how many sit-ups I had to do, how fast I had to run, so many miles, all that kind of stuff, and I started in on it. And one day I was doing sit-ups in my living room, and I was trying to really push it, and then all of a sudden something in my belly was sticking out. I was like, that shouldn't happen. It's called a hernia. The military said, thanks, but no thanks. It's a privilege to serve. And it's a privilege to serve in this fight. But it's a fight done not by yelling and screaming and and all that kind of stuff. It's a fight done through love and prayer and sacrifice. And remember, it's not a fight with a political party. It's a fight with Satan himself. This is what the book of Revelation, one of the, one of the themes of the book of Revelation is that you think that Caesar is your enemy. And John is being inspired to write, Caesar's just the press secretary. Satan is the enemy. He's the beast. And we need to keep that in mind. Now, before I quit, like I said, I'm a history nerd. I love learning about the Civil War. It's probably, I don't know why, because it's probably one of the most brutal eras of our history. Americans slaughtering each other in their backyards. How many of you recognize this lady? Okay, we're at a big zero again. I told you I was a nerd. No, close. This is, as she came to be known originally, Mrs. Bickerdyke. She was, for you Buckeyes, one of the first women ever admitted to Oberlin College. She met her husband there, who was a lawyer. She had three children with him. And then he died rather unexpectedly from a heart attack. She moved her and her kids to Indiana. She was in church on a Sunday, and this was 1861, right after the outbreak of the Civil War. And the local sanitary commission, a representative came by and said, we need volunteers to take supplies 
down south to the Union Army to help them. They don't know how to set up mobile hospitals. Their hospitals are a mess. They're not sanitary at all. They're not clean. We need people who will volunteer to go and show them how to set up clean hospitals, how to maintain clean hospitals, how to care for the sick and the wounded. And we need to take them supplies. And every man in the congregation went like this. And Mrs. Bickerdike went, okay, I'll go. And so she sent her three kids to her sisters in Wisconsin, and she loaded up a wagon full of medical supplies, and she went to meet General Grant in Kentucky. And she set up a hospital there. The letter that she had been given from the Sanitary Commission to introduce her to the Army said that she would be there for a week, show them how to set up a hospital, and bring supplies. She wouldn't stay. She did stay for four years. She set up more than 300 mobile hospitals in her time. She kept them clean and sanitary, probably saved thousands of lives just that way alone. She prayed with and over every single soldier, whether north, south, white, or black, didn't matter. She would grab their hands and pray with them during surgery. She would pray over them. If they died, she would take their belongings, put them in a nice box with a handwritten note, and send it to their relatives. The reminder of how brave their boy had been. When fugitive slaves began to flock into the Union camps, racist officers just wanted to use them to dig latrines. And Mrs. Bickerdike said, no, 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 no. And she put uniforms on them, and she said, you're going to work with me, and you're going to learn to be nurses, and you're going to learn to work in the hospital, and you're going to help me until they put you out and to fight because it was years before, you know, blacks could fight in the Northern Army. They wanted to, but they just, because of bigotry, they weren't allowed to for several years. So she said, until then, you come work for me. One day, somewhere deep in the South after a battle, Mrs. Bickerdike she was off talking to someone about something, and a colonel walked into the hospital and told every black hospital worker to leave. Go dig latrines. Take off those uniforms. You don't deserve them, and go dig latrines. Mrs. Bickerdike was coming back. She saw them. She said, where are you going? Colonel told us, go dig latrines. No, you're not. You turn right around. You put those uniforms back, and we, we got work to do in the hospital. Come on. And the colonel got mad and went to William Tecumseh Sherman, second in command of the Union Army, just up the road from Lancaster, Ohio. Second only to U.S. Grant, and they were good buddies. William Tecumseh Sherman was sitting there, and the colonel marched in and said, This woman, this civilian volunteer, just countermanded my order. What are we going to do about this? General Sherman took a second and said, I don't know what can be done. She outranks me. At the end of the Civil War, General Grant was asked for the big celebration, the big procession of the Union Army down through Washington, D.C. to celebrate our victory, who should lead the parade. 
he said, Mrs. Bickerdyke. And she did. Then when she went home and got her three kids and retired to Kansas, though she would go on to read law and become a lawyer and spend the rest of her life fighting for Union soldiers to make sure they got their full pensions from the Union Army, General Grant went before Congress and said, you need to give this woman a full pension too. They said, she's a civilian. She's not a soldier. General Grant said, I don't care. She deserves one. Give it to her. And they did. I need you to understand something. This woman put four years of her life, she, in a call church, she stood up and she went and she saw that there was a need and there was a fight, a righteous fight that needed to happen and they needed help. And she jumped in, even in danger of her own life. Bullets and, and cannonballs usually flew through the hospitals when they were having surgeries. The generals and those who just met her called her Mrs. Bickerdyke. The soldiers called her Mother Bickerdyke. But in my opinion, right now, before the heavenly throne, she is a priest in the order of Jesus Christ. And I don't know how you want to be known as eternity, but I want that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your word, for your son, our priest, our king, our prophet, our teacher, our everything. May we serve him not just within this building, but within our families, both our families of blood and our church family. May we worship and pray and sacrifice. May we know your word and share it. May we be your priests today and forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. God go with you. Be praying for me because my wife is dragging me to the driving range and that's going to test my sanctification. See you next time. Christ Community Church, located at 25th and Thomas Avenue in Portsmouth, Ohio. Christ Community meets on Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 10.30 a.m. For more information, visit www.christcommunity.net or check out our Facebook page.